everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. And I think the only way you can create the world that you see around you is by being a builder or a creator. That's how you decide if you become the architect of your life or somebody else does. So if you want to figure out how to make real change, you need to figure out the language that change speaks. And it's great. It's monetary. So figure out money if you want to change things. If you want to cash flow passively, you need to understand the sexy, boring continuum. And the sexy, boring continuum is basically that Typically, the sexier something is, the less money you make in it. Cody, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. I am super excited to have you on the show. I've had a ton of people that have reached out and asked me about you. And honestly, I didn't know who you were. Um, and when I did a little Googling and I looked at uh, why they were asking, it made sense to me. So I'm super excited that you agreed to do this. Oh, my pleasure. This is going to be fun. All right. So I think a good jumping off place would be to take you back to growing up in the late 90s in Arizona. Could you describe what it was like growing up in a Latino household, speaking two languages, and maybe give us a sense for what the environment was like for you during those early years? Yeah. You know, what I actually remember the most was we lived in Arizona, which is a little bit even more wild sometimes, I think, than Texas. Um, and, you know, my father's family came from Spain. And with that came a lot of hunting and outdoors. You know, they would they would raise their own animals. They would hunt their own food often in this place called Globe or Miami, Arizona, a tiny little mining town, like an hour and a half north of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And that's where they came over after the war um, or, you know, when, when there was a civil war in, in Spain with Franco. And so um, what I think was, I remember more than, more than anything is I would spend a ton of time in the outdoors with my family. And, you know, my father was kind of a hard ass, still is. And he and I would go camping. We would go shooting. We would um, go hunting. And I think doing some ridiculous things like that when I was younger, probably not that normal for like, you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old girl to be out, you know, hunting ducks and duck blinds and all that um, today has made a lot of things that seem hard, not as hard because there's just a difference between physicality and life and death and being part of that process that, you know, for all of us peeps who make money on the internet, it's just a totally different game. So if we fast forward a little bit, um, you had a brief stint as a journalist and you were living on the border of, uh, Mexico and the U S in what ways do you think that experience sort of informs the kind of work you're doing today? If the any, best, yeah, well, the best thing that I think you can do as an investor, if you want to be an incredible investor, what should you do? It's one thing. And that is, ask good questions. If you can ask good questions, you can get the answer to anything. A lot of people get that backwards. They think to be a good investor, you have to have the answers. You have to know things. You have to be an expert. And that's absolutely not true. I think probably the best vetting ground for investors is to be a journalist. 
It's to ask uncomfortable questions. It's to not understand things and have to dig in deeply to a bunch of different areas in order to win. And so um, when I was a journalist, that's what we learned. We learned to ask really uncomfortable questions of narcos, of policemen, of, you know, humans who had lost their husbands or daughters or sisters to either border violence or, you know, the drug war um, or just immigration. And so once you learn, you know, I can tell on a human oftentimes pretty quickly if I want to engage with this human long-term or not. And that comes as a part of a survival mechanism. It's an offshoot from being in an area where people are are having difficulty and, and struggling to survive every single day. And as a journalist, you get this spidey sense. You get this sick sense of mm, something's off here. Are they lying? Are they not telling us the whole truth? How can we dig? How can we get more information for them? And that skill has probably transcended anything I learned in my MBA or PhD or on you know the trading floors of Wall Street. Does that questioning ability come natural for you, that skill set, or is it something that you had to work at? Naturally. If you've ever hung out with me at a cocktail party, I'm not very fun. If you just want to talk about the weather, your kids, the PTA, not that interested. But um, ever since I was a young, young girl, I was always super curious about the world around me, just ravenous books upon books of where could I see what's happening in the world through somebody else's eyes. And, um, and then I think that was cultivated from being a writer. So when you're a writer, you're kind of always, at least how I think about things when I write is I sit down and I might read something interesting or have a conversation like this. And immediately afterwards, I'm like, Ooh, that's an interesting question that Rob brought up. I want to go and Google that. And I want to find some answers around it. And then I would write out the answers to it. And so I, I think that was always part natural. You weren't just a question asker though. You were, you know, it's funny. I have this expression I made up called an ask hole. It's like the person that just like asks you like the same freaking question over and over again. And you're like, oh my God, like, because they're not taking action on what you answered. So you not only were a question asker, but you were also one who took action on the answers to the question. Consequently, that's how you wound up with a, an MBA and a PhD, et cetera. But you realized pretty soon on that journalism was not for you. Why was that? I wanted to make history. I didn't want to write about it. And the difference between being a journalist and being a builder is one tells stories about the other. And so when I thought about journalism, I didn't just want to be an echo chamber for what was happening. True journalism in the way that I was taught it was that you see something happening in the world. You try to get to the truth and cut through the noise and the narrative to get to the numbers and the facts as succinctly as you can. And then you share that with humans. Um, it wasn't opining. It wasn't editorial, editorializing. It was what is the truth and how do we share it um, as easily as possible so people can understand. And um, I think that's a noble pursuit, very much so. But I actually wanted to be actively participating in creating the world that I see around me. And I think the only way you can create the world that you see around you is by being a builder or a creator. That's how you decide if you become the architect of your life or somebody else does. And so that is what made me decide, no, 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 I'm going to go into investing. I'm going to go into build business building because I don't want to tell somebody else's story. I want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's kind of like I always see you know, people who are movie critics and it's easy to critique a movie. It ain't easy to make one. So I, I love that. That's great. Exactly. You were um, considering going to law school and you had a conversation with a law professor about money and power. Why was that important to you at that time, that conversation at that time in your life? You know, I, I think most of us have a moment in our life, our life where we do something because we think that the world uh, supports that decision. It's what our parents want. It's what society wants. It's what we think we should want. But we forget um, that voice deep inside of us that actually knows what we should be doing every single day that we're breathing. And, you know, at the ripe old age of whatever, 19 or 20, um, I thought, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be a journalist anymore. And now what do I do? And the reason I didn't want to be a journalist is because I started getting jaded a little bit too. You know, you go and get excited about covering some of the world's atrocities that happen. And so um, how could 
how can you rectify yourself as a human who writes these stories and gets excited about the, you know, virality you get about something kind of terrible that happens? So I didn't like that very much. And I was sitting down with my law professor. I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the law and I'm going to be a justice and steward for the people. And he said, well, well, Cody, um, why are you leaving journalism? And I said, well, I wrote this one story about this woman by the name of Carmelita. And she was on the U.S.-Mexico border and got left behind by her family for 20 years, um, was in a horrible, derelict living situation. We wrote stories about her. We had that virality. It came back, gave her some awards and money. Well, at the end of it, she says to me, um, you know, Cody, she said, Karina, now that Americans know about us, you're going to come save us, right? You're going to you're going to fix things like they're going to wreck. They're going to find our family. And I was like, oh, geez, um, no. In fact, nobody really cares about the story. Like I brought you guys this stuff back, but this is like a, a, a pimple on the surface of, an, of a giant. And um, and so when I was speaking with my law professor, he said, well, why do you think Carmelita Gutierrez, that was her name, why does Miss Gutierrez have a different life than Miss Sanchez? And I was like, well, I don't know. Uh, I was born in the U.S. And she's like, no, there are Gutierrez's in the U.S. that have the exact same situation. And I was like, well, I probably have different socioeconomics. I, I think I have, you know, more money. Maybe I came from kind of a middle-class family. He's like, exactly. So if you want to figure out how to make real change, you need to figure out the language that change speaks. And it's green. It's monetary. So figure out money if you want to change things. And I thought that was pretty good advice. Well, that, you know, it's interesting how a conversation like that changes the entire trajectory of your life. I mean, that's the impact of a, of a you know, when you have a teacher at, that's, that, that's willing to take that level of time to help you out with that. That's, that's really cool. How did venture capital and private equity at Goldman Sachs enter your life? When I was, I started out in finance at Vanguard, uh, sort of a passive company. And at Vanguard, I learned about how money can work for you if you just set it and forget it. But then I wanted to layer on top of that, how did the rich get really, really rich? Like, What does a billionaire know that I don't? And what I quickly realized is if you look at the list of the Forbes 100, let's say, and you filter down by their profession, there's really two things you'll notice. One, they are owners of private companies or inheritors of private companies, or two, they are private investors. It is all on the private side of money that the billions is made. People actually don't make billions very often in public markets, the stock market, where most of us play. And the reason why is because it's hyper-democratized. Everybody can play in this market. You can go trade it on E-Trade now or Robinhood. But when it comes to private company building or investing, it's a there's a moat. It's harder to do. And so when I was at Vanguard, that was all public markets. But I was like, wait a second, I want to figure out how to become a billionaire and how to, how to have billionaire ripples in the world. And that's when I realized, oh, the private companies are where it's at. Who is the best provider of investing at private company scale? And at that time, I thought it was Goldman Sachs. And so one of the reasons I went there is to learn active investing, private investing, as opposed to passive investing. Because passive investing is not where the billions are made. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. It's interesting, you know, it's funny how, um how things happen in life. Um, just a, a little side note, living here, we were, we were talking before we started filming um, about me living here in Tuscany. And one of the interesting things about being here is a lot of people who have made money and decided that you know they have enough of it, they want to make a change in their life and they want to do something different. So I'm surrounded by people that um, have been in your space um, and have been incredibly successful. So today I had lunch with two guys, just it was on the books for a month, um, but they both are in venture capital and private equity. And so I was letting them know I was doing this interview with you in a few hours. And they asked me a little bit about, you know, what you do. And I said, she does, I, and I, and, and I'm not in this world at all. Um, I said, she does boring businesses. 
And they left and they said, that's all we look for. We only want boring businesses. And I realized in the conversation with them that I'm going to, when I say you people, I'm going to say that means venture capital, private equity people, right? You all think, I understand why you have the name contrarian because you think very, very differently. And they said, well, give me an example. So I was showing them your, uh, your TikTok. And I, and I, I said to him, I'm like a 16 year old girl, you know, I get all my information from TikTok, you know? So that's where I get my news. You guys, you guys, you guys look at CNBC. I look at TikTok. And so, and they just, you know, they left. And I said, um, I said, like, look here, you know, laundromats, and we'll get into that in a second. And I said, would you guys, you know, buy that? And they said, yeah, of course. They said, but we wouldn't buy one, we'd buy 50, 100, you know? And they have a very clear set of rules. They don't want to run it. They much prefer having management that's in place and they want to do it at scale. So with that background, the question I have for you is for the guy like maybe me that doesn't think the way that you do, does it still make sense to buy one of those boring businesses and not 50 A or B? Is it better to have a plan of buying one and then buying multiple after that? Because I asked him, I said, why would you want to buy so many? They said, because we're always thinking about selling it. So we would want to have a package that is attractive to an, an investor. So that's a long background, but I wanted to give you proper context. So maybe you can just kind of talk a little bit around that. Sure. Well, first, I think if you want to cash flow passively, you need to understand the sexy, boring continuum. And the sexy, boring continuum is basically that typically the sexier something is, the less money you make in it on average. The more boring something is, the more money you can make in it on average. And the reason I say that is if you think about marketing degrees, really a lot of them and their average salary is twenty-seven dollars to $32,000 a year. And then if you think about electricians, the average salary for an electrician is somewhere between $150,000 and $250,000 a year. Now, marketing sounds cooler. Electrician is a lot more boring, but makes more money. And the reason I say this at scale is because if you think about podcasting, we all look at George Joe Rogan, right? We're like, he makes millions. But most people who make podcasts on average do it for this much because it's sexy. They do it for zero dollars. So I think people need to divorce actually their passions from their profits entirely. When I think about doing a business that is a cash flowing business, I think about it like a bond. A bond is something that it pays me no matter what. It pays me X percent kind of guaranteed on a continual basis. I'm not looking for the Walmart bond to become a Google or a you know Amazon rocket ship. I'm looking for the bond to pay me a consistent percentage year over year. And so that is what you want to do when you buy boring businesses. Yes, you want to buy something like a laundromat that's boring, let's say. And then once you find, let's call it the vertical or the process that works, you want to scale it up, not through asymmetric return, aka Google becomes a rocket ship, but through acquisition, which is this boring business is a bond that pays me $1,000 a month. This business itself is never going to pay me more than $1,000 a month. Where people get it wrong is they're like, we'll put a bar in there and then we'll do premium products and then we'll have a soap line. No, you're applying the sexy side of the business. We think boring. And so all we do is acquisition. We add another laundromat and another laundromat and another laundromat to the mix. Or we add laundromat and then wash and fold delivery and more wash and fold delivery, et cetera. And so does it make sense for the average person to just own one of these? Depends on how much money you want to make. How much do you need your bond to return? If you are cool with a bond that pays you $1,000 a month and you take no time out of your schedule because you have somebody that runs it, then that's an awesome business for you. If you only want any attention span on a business that makes you at least $10,000 a month, then you probably don't want to own one laundromat. You might have to own 
five or 10, or maybe you own a landscaping business. And so sexy, boring continuum, and then you're not thinking asymmetric risk reward, you're thinking acquisition. Okay. So we're going to dance around these concepts. Many of my listeners are fans of the four-hour workweek where there are, he calls them a muse, an automated business that is generating income for them to live the lifestyle that they want. So let's say that someone has 20,000 bucks and they want to set up a business in the States and they want to um, follow Tim Ferriss's philosophy and they want to buy you know, a boring business. They've seen you, they've read the book because that's probably a lot of people listening to the show. Um, and they they want to do what he did, you know. They want to tango in uh, in Buenos Aires. What are some good first steps for them in that container that I just created? So, if you have twenty thousand dollars, where would I go with buying a business? I would start with realizing that your twenty thousand dollars should have leverage applied to it. So. SBA loans, for instance, allow you to buy a business for anywhere from 80 to 90% of the purchase price is paid for by the government. So if you're in the US, probably not in Tuscany, but if you're in the US and you want to buy a business that does, let's say, a million dollars in, um, or that is worth a million dollars, then you need anywhere from 10 to 20% of the purchase price down. Right. So that means in this case, if we have 20K, I'm maybe looking at a, a business that I could buy for a couple hundred, you know, a hundred thousand dollars because I want to have some extra wiggle room, maybe. Um, and I'm going to buy that business for a hundred thousand dollars and I'll put down ten thousand dollars cash and then I'll use the additional ten thousand dollars, let's say, for expenses or emergency fund if anything goes wrong. Yep. So I would just need to know first how much money do I need to have for this business? The second thing, there's 10 steps in business buying. We won't go through them all, but the second step that you have to think about is how much money do you need that $20,000 to make you? Or now let's call it your $100,000 allocation. And how I start thinking about this is for most people, if you have $20,000 right now to allocate, you either are going to need to spend your time on the deal somehow, or you're going to need more money and then put somebody else in to spend some time. So it's like there's three legs to the tripod. I call it the deal-making tripod so that you can have money, time, expertise. Any of those three legs of the tripod will get you more return on your investment. So say you have no time, but you have a lot of money. Then you can hire somebody in Tuscany who's going to run your vineyard because you bought the thing and they are going to operate it, deal with all the headaches, and you're going to pay them and give them a percentage of it, right? Yep. If you have no money, but you have a lot of time, then you might go to somebody like Rob and say, hey, Rob, you have money, but you don't want to spend any time. How about I go and buy a couple of HVAC companies for you and I'll run them, but we'll use your money to do it. I'll take an ownership percentage of part of it and I will run that business. Or the third solution, I don't have money, I don't have time, but I have a lot of expertise hey, I know how to run a production studio. I've ran a bunch of them. I can give you all the strategy and your 10,000 hour cheat code. You give me a percentage of the business and some revenue share on it. And the person who has the time puts the time in it. And the person who has the money funds the deal. So those are the three legs you need. So Tim Ferriss says, do an automated business that could you know, print you this amount of money. That works really well if you have a product or idea that you think can do that. Um, when I think it doesn't work as well is if you need, you know, a, a new idea, if you don't have an idea, then I think you should buy a boring business. You should put down some of your time, but more of your money, or you should have somebody else put that down their time and you put down your money. And that's how I would do the deal. All right. So let's now dig in a bit into the different types of boring businesses. You do a really, really good job of uh, social media on this stuff. You're a lot of fun. You're very interesting. You're very engaging. And you really are making people think, which I think is why a lot of people wanted me to have you on the show. Of all those boring businesses that you talk about, which one of them continues to blow you away at profitability, and how uncomplicated they are, because you talk about a lot of different businesses. You know, you 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 lean on laundromats a lot. That's a big one for you. 
Um, but it's not the only thing you talk about. You talk about lots of things. So out of all of these things that you're talking about, which is the one that you're like, this one just consistently is good. Yeah. Well, a lot of people might ask me, I don't know what kind of business to buy. What sort of business should I buy? Cody, I'm brand new at this. What do I do? And the reason I talk about laundromats first up front often is it's a gateway drug. If you cannot understand putting a quarter in a machine, washing clothes, taking them out and profiting on it, don't buy a fucking business. What business? Any business. Don't do it. Because if you can't understand that, you shouldn't do it. But that's why I talk about laundromats. Laundromats are in fact, not the best business to buy. In fact, they're really hard over the long term to get a business that does a million dollars or $3 million in sales because laundromats are small. You know, you'd have to have a very big one with massive volume to have a couple quarters turn into millions of dollars. It is a great gateway business that you can start, understand, and then sell. It's probably not a great business if you want to cash flow 100,000 or more a year. That's harder to do. If I wanted to cash flow, let's say six figures a year in buying the business, but I still wanted to do it passively, I want to be lazy about it, then I would probably do something like uh, mobile home parks, more money down, but you have bigger chunks coming in consistently. Um, I might do something like parking lots, well done parking lots that have, you know, sort of an old school mom and pop style that you can apply technology to and then cash flow on top of them. I might do something like an RV park, um, or I might do something like a services business, such as property management. Um, that takes care of all of the people who now own Airbnbs. Maybe I don't want to own the actual real estate of the Airbnb, but I want to own the property management company that makes 20% of every dime made on every one of our Airbnb companies out there. Those are pretty easy to run, very little OPEX, very little CAPEX, meaning you don't have to shell out money to own one of those. So I would probably go for that type of business. Last thing I'll say is, when you're looking for a business that you want to cash flow heavily, but you don't want to do much work, What you need to look for is high margin, low people businesses. And that means that you want businesses that don't have a lot of employees, but businesses that maybe have 10 employees or less. And then you want businesses that have some margin protection, which means you're not looking for 10 to 15% margin. You want 25% plus margin on your investments. Those high margin, low people businesses are how you can layer 26 businesses on top of each other and cash flow on them. I couldn't do that if my businesses each had hundreds or thousands of employees. You know, it's interesting. As you're describing things like mobile home, I'm going, ooh. And you, you know, you talk about parking lots. I'm like, ugh. RV parks. I'm like, ugh. Every fiber of my being is going, that's so boring. You know what I mean? Like a like I can't think of anything more boring than like gray pavement of a parking lot. Do you know what I mean? Like it sounds horribly boring, but for you, it gives you a boner. I mean, you're like, this is, this is incredible. I love this. In fact, I was looking at a parking lot deal today that I was like, this is the sexiest thing I've seen all week. Like you want to get me all hot and bothered. Not George Clooney. Yeah, no, it's not. Fuck George. Don't care. I'm much more interested in triple net leases on parking lots. Like that is my love language. By the way, that's going to be the, that's going to be the pull piece. That's going to be, that's going to be the pull quote. Pull quote. Fuck George. I give me yeah. a triple. Um, when I'm big enough, that'll be a commercial. We'll have like George. Like, do you like? No. You know, da da no, da, da, know. da da. And then we'll be like, fuck George. And we'll be like parking yeah. lot. <laughs> Yes. So how you, I think your portfolio is 30 million, 35 million, something like that now. Um, Yeah. So we do about $35 million in revenue uh, in our businesses uh, right now. And my goal is I want to hit 50 in the next, let's call it two years. I'd like to hit it this year. I don't think we'll do it, Um, but that's the goal. Okay. So what does it feel like for you now in your body to have that kind of revenue coming in? You talked recently about celebrating your wins and that that doesn't come natural to you, right? What does it feel like for you? You know, this is, I have a very interesting lens now that I'm living here in Italy because, you know, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday and 
I said to him, I said, you know, the, the Americans, they don't know when to stop working. He said, well, the Italians don't, want, don't know when to start. So, uh, <laughs> so true. So it's a, it's, it's a very interesting thing for me to see this drive that the Americans, right? And, and by Americans, I mean Australians and Canadians, you know, they're grinding and they're, I want to, you know, I want a hundred million. I want three, like this, uh, this venture capital guy, today at lunch, he said, he said, you know, we did this survey in my company that I work for. And when we asked people how much money they want to make, whenever we asked what they want to make over the course of their career, the number, the answer was always three times what they were currently making. So if they were making a hundred grands, they wanted to make 300. When they were making a million, they wanted to make 3 million. And he said, it taught me that the goal post is always moving. It just doesn't stop no matter what you're making. So my question to you around that is, and this sort of goes into this like work hard, play hard sort of piece. I know I'm sure that you have a really big mission that you want and you have a big why behind it, but are you hitting a point now and you're young, maybe not, but are you hitting a point now where you're like, I want to have X. And once I have X, then I want to do, you know, I want to live in the Virgin Islands. I want to move to Paris. Is there any of that that's in you at this stage of your life? When I think about when is enough enough, the answer, that question actually totally befuddles me because, um, I can't think of anything else that I would rather be doing than the business that I'm running at this point. There's very few days where I'm annoyed or drained or don't want to do something that I'm doing. I've optimized my career by this point where um, anything that I don't want to do, I'm basically delegating. And if I'm not delegating in the moment, uh, in the moment it's a horribly annoying thorn in my side that I'm very rapidly trying to figure out how to remove it, um, which is a really cool spot to be in. But I have had it at multiple times in my career where I was miserable doing what I was doing. Um, I have that weird personality trait. I don't know if you feel this way or anybody listening does, but like, I really want to do very few things more than I want to work. Like, and I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with that. Like, I love what I'm doing. I love the labor of love. And um, I can't imagine stopping that. If you ask me, Cody, do you want to go take, I'll pay you a million bucks go take six months off. You can't look at anything. You can't do anything, but you can peruse around Paris. I'd tell you to go fly a kite. Do not just, care. Just don't care. No. At some point, I'm sure I will want to slow down maybe. Um, but I have like a, I got like a three week window on vacations where I think it's interesting. Even like the most fascinating books um, and having incredibly stimulating conversation. Uh, I want to do it and then I want to apply it to something. I want to build something based off the cool stuff that we're doing. Now, I don't think that I'm optimized right now from a total time perspective. I work too many hours a day or maybe too many days a week, or maybe I should take a month off here and there more often. Like definitely. Um, but if you told me cold turkey, I can't work, I'd be miserable. That would That's worse than solitary confinement. So you're monomaniacal when it comes to business. You're just like, this is your thing. This gets you off. This is like, this is your, your jam right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you talk to my husband, he would, you would shuffle because the reason we do so well together is that he doesn't want to talk about all this stuff all the time. So I'm like, Oh, we got to stop talking about this now. And he's like, yes, we will go for a walk and we shall go to dinner and you will enjoy it. And so that's, that's good for me, but I don't naturally want to do it. What is the Mr. Cody Sanchez like? Uh, well, he's a former, uh, he hates when I say this, but he's a former Navy SEAL. So he's very hard. I knew you were going to say that. I don't know why yeah. I didn't know that, but I just <laughs> felt like that was going to be the next thing you said. I don't know why. So, yeah. so you're attracted to that balls to the walls, like go for it sort of thing. You do it in business and you do it in marriage too. Yeah, that's probably about right. And at least it doesn't have to be that you go hard all the time, but you have to be really curious for me to be interested in us having a friendship. I don't know about you, but it's been hard for me over the years. Um, 
I've had, I have a lot of friends from back in the day, you know, and, and they're great humans. But when we get together, we talk about people or what's happened since we last saw each other. And I really struggle to pretend to be interested in any of that. And so it's actually become a little game that I'll play with myself where I try to, you know, what are you reading lately? Like, what is the thing that has pissed you off more than anything else? Because I think every human's interesting, um, but you have to pull it out of people. And um, if you're not curious and naturally growing, it's really hard um, for me to want to engage in that. I think the higher up you go, I mean, you obviously have this because you're like, ooh, interesting. So you're like this and you're cataloging it against all these other conversations that you've had to build mental models to better understand the world. And so people who are like that, I think run the world and people who are not like that, you almost cannot relate to the other side until you flip that switch. Yeah, for sure. How many different, within your portfolio, how many different businesses are there? Roughly. Well, there are, there are 24 businesses. I just sold two. I'm buying another one. There's 24 separate businesses. Now, inside of those businesses, there might be different entities inside them. We might, if we have a mobile home, uh, you know, park company, there might be multiple parks that are inside of that. Yep. But there are 24 of these businesses. Now, of those, there's only two that I run actively. Um, everything else, I'm a passive investor in it. And I may own a majority share, but somebody else runs it and reports up to to me. Okay, so you don't know, or, or this is actually a question. Do you know any of the people involved in the business? Like, do you know the employees? Do you know the guy that's sweeping the floor? Or is it just, you know, hands off, like 100% hands off, somebody else runs it. I, I, I just get the numbers. That's a great question. I would say for 90% of them, it's the latter, not the former. It's more private equity style. So like we have an operator, but that operator lives and breathes that company. And I do everything to be there to support that operator. Um, But I do not get involved in the business. I am not there on a daily basis. Multiple of these businesses, I haven't even been to all of their locations. Now I try to think of myself as an enabler of these businesses. I'm not micromanaging them. Um, I would be a net negative if I went in to, let's say, our SEO agency marketing company and tried to tell the CEO or any of the employees what to do. And I might even be a net negative if I told those employees that I was involved and then they wanted to come around the CEO to me. So I really try to be very behind the scenes on most of these businesses that I that I own. There will be a few that will be public on, but few and far between. Why do what you're doing on social? You don't need the money. It's a lot of work. It's a pain in the ass having a phone in your face every 10 minutes, right? I know it. I live that world. It's not easy. Why do it? I guess I really like it. I think, you know, if I actually think, so why should you do social media? It's because there's four lovers that move the world. Labor, uh, capital, code, and audience. And audience is the newest lever that we have just come to understand over, let's say, the last 20 years, and then with social media, the last, you know, 10 more so. Um, And this lever of audience is the most powerful lever I've ever seen. And so... When I first started on social media, I had no idea where this would go, but I said, well, I understand how to use capital as a lever. If you give me money, I understand how to take that money and make more of it. If you give me employees, I understand how to take workers and get more out of them and build something from it. Um, Same with code. I understand how to implement software and make that software work for me. But I thought, I don't understand audience. I don't understand it at all, actually. But I think it's going to be massively powerful, which is why you see Andreessen Horowitz, some of these big VC companies, you see Goldman Sachs building an audience because they understand that it's massively powerful and there will be big ripples from it. And so that's why I started it is because I wanted to understand this new form of leverage. And then I started doing it and thought, you know, this is actually pretty fun. And instead of getting rich quietly, we could all get rich together. And then maybe we could actually influence the zeitgeist, you know, the culture of the day by sharing ideas as the Trojan horse to changing philosophy. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, 
you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. You have uh, some products. You have a newsletter that yep. you call uh, Contrarian Thinking. Um, what is it and who is it for? Contrarian thinking is all about two things. We free minds and we build bank accounts. So the idea is you cannot be philosophically free. You cannot be a free human if you do not have your financial concerns covered. You got to have a house over your head. You got to be able to pay for food. You've got to be able to take care of your kids if you need to. So we want to help people stabilize monetarily. And then we want to help them grow because I think one of the most powerful things that you can do besides audience is that other lever we talked about capital. If you actually want to make your change happen in the world, you need money to do it. Period. End of story. And so we help people get money. And then on top of that, though, the idea for me is if we have a group of humans who are all financially free and then we teach them to think critically and to question everything, how would our world look? It would be a lot harder to influence financially free humans and even more so to do it with humans that think critically and question things. And I think if we could, if we could make our mission to change people's perspective on those two avenues, then I think probably most of the concerns we have in the US right now, for instance, wouldn't be happening because people would say, financially, I have enough power to infect you know, my beliefs on the world. And philosophically, I don't believe what you're saying. And so I'm going to push back on that because I know how. And that is what we do at Contrarian Thinking. So free your mind, build your bank account, and it's for anyone who is interested in those two things. Okay. Um, you went on to higher education. You've, you've got your master's from Georgetown. You went on to get your PhD. You are extraordinarily articulate. I mean, you're, you know, I'm not flirting with you here, but you're the total package. You've got... Um, you really are. I mean, you. My husband listening. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna send him this episode. <laughs> you can send it to him. You can tell him. Tell him I said it too. I'm going to. What's he gonna do? It's not like he's a Navy SEAL. <laughs> um, so, so, where did your ability to articulate your thoughts so well come from? How did you develop that skill? Maybe is a better question. If you want to think well. I think you need to write well. And if you want to speak well, you need to write well. And so everything comes from writing. It's very easy to spew information out of your mouth and not realize how many additives that you have in there and not realize all the ums and ohs. You know, have you ever listened to yourself afterwards and thought, oh, that's what I sound like? Because when we're speaking, it's very hard for our brain to also process that and think about what do we sound like in this moment? The way to become a better speaker, I think, is to become a better writer. And since my baseline has always been writing, I can edit and tweak and reuse phrases and obsess upon words in a way that somehow translates to when I speak. I'm not the best at it, but I think it is probably the highest value you could do if you want to influence people is to learn to write clearly so that you can speak clearly and then influence people. It's great because I almost said you speak in perfect prose. So that's interesting how that comes out. Oh, All right. Thank you. You're welcome. So as we, uh, as we wrap up here, I'm going to ask you some questions that are going to fall into the, why is he asking me these questions category? Um, what do people often get wrong about you? On the internet, I think it's difficult to translate nuanced thoughts. A lot of what we do, I have money is my Trojan horse. I can get people to care about philosophy, ownership, responsibility, free thinking. If I can say, do you want to make $100,000 a year in 30 minutes? Then I can get people to think about, oh, I'm telling you about a laundromat or I'm telling you about a vending machine, but guess what else you're going to learn? You're going to learn ownership. You're going to learn LLC structures. You're going to learn employees. You're going to learn backend management. And with all of that ownership, you're going to realize, oh, Actually, there's this huge world of other things that I can influence, and it is better to be an owner than be a subject for somebody else. And so I think a lot of people mistake our content that at times can be money-focused and clickbaity for get-rich-quick schemes. It's the opposite of that. It is a get-rich-slowly and get-ownership 
quickly in order to stop being a subject and become an owner. I think that would probably be the biggest one. Got it. What's one thing that you've not gotten to in your life yet? And if you don't get to this thing, you're going to have massive regret. My massive regret would be if I don't write the book. I have a book that I've been writing forever and it's funky. It's not exactly aligned to buying businesses. And here's how to do it. Because I think that would be a boring book and somebody else already wrote one of those. And so getting that book out into the world, I really almost don't care if anybody reads it. It's just that nagging little woodpecker pecking away at your brain nonstop that stops you from thinking about other things. And so if you talk to me again in a year and I haven't made project or progress with that, you can chin kick me. Um, are you open to sharing roughly what the book is about? Yeah. The book is called Subversive and it's a, uh, it's a novel wrapped in a self-help book. And so the idea was, could we make it fascinating for you to get better as a human? Could you lose yourself in the pages of a story that also taught you things? Um, because I think the best ways to learn are through parable and case study. And so could we actually make those two things entertaining? So this is the story of a, of a young woman sort of on a journey with the outside world trying to influence her in a lot of negative ways and what happens to her if she does it the right way. And it's, you know, I joke about it being 60% true and 40% false and you get to, you get to try to pick which one's which. It's really good. Sounds like a good movie too. Oh, um, what are some things that you're currently doing that you don't love and you'd like to do less of? I'm a terrible traffic cop. Um, so I don't know if, um, I think in every business you have, you know, the creative growth pursuits and then you have the maintenance continuation pursuits. And so in my business right now, I'm really good at, if we want to bring in more revenue, I got that. If we want to, you know, create more interesting content, I got that. Partnerships, I got that. Where I'm really not good at it and I have to have a good COO and now I'm hiring another biz ops person is, Hey, did you, did you do that report? Hey, um, where's the cover to this? Um, I see a few errors over here. That makes me want to gouge my eyeballs out. And so that is the constant struggle with, I think, at just about every 3X in every business I have. So when a business 3Xs itself, they break. And so we're in a breaking point in one of the businesses that I run where we have to add another level of people just because... I don't want to run around trying to traffic cop everybody in the business. Got it. The micro, the micromanaging. Yes. Um, do you ever get down on yourself? And if you do, how do you, how do you, how do you get yourself out of it? Yeah. I wake up with like rage and hate in my heart. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> oh yeah. I wake up just thinking about that to-do list and all the things that's on it and why isn't it done and who owes me money and who owes me stuff. Um, a lot of people say, you know, I manage with love and I'm like, no, I manage with hate. And it's this idea that, um, you know, every single action that I'm taking, I feel like there's a forward progress that, that I want to have happen. And if that's not happening, it's a huge annoyance um, for me. And so I'm down on myself all the time, for sure. And I think the, the beauty in life is trying to figure out how to actually enjoy the ride. Like my, my word, I have a word every week. And when I have a week that it, there's some annoying stuff going on, it's something like, fun. Like, okay, I get to have fun solving this problem this week. And this is going to be a fun experiment. But in my heart, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, God damn it. Why isn't this done? And I think a lot of people are like that. And, um, you know, so I guess I just try to find the fun in sort of the hateful acts. Do you really have a word every week? Yeah. What's this week? It's fun. It's fun. This I have a couple fun. annoying things. What yeah. Was, so it's what, like, what was the last week? Uh, get it done. So I guess it wasn't one word, but it was get it done. We had a big project that I wanted to have done last week. So everything, if somebody would come to, here's what it's like to work for me. If you want to hear about how miserable that is, um, somebody will come to me and say, this isn't working. And when it's the word that week, I say, well, what's the word this week? And they'll be like, get it done. And I'm like, mm -hmm, okay, any other questions? And then, you know, they got to go do it. Interesting. What new behavior or habit has improved your life the most? You know, I have a really hard time, Rob, sticking with habits. Um, so that's something I've been working on for 35 years, ongoing problem, basically. Um, but the, the biggest impact for me is actually the smallest things. It's like 
don't drink a lot of alcohol, uh, get up early every morning at the same time, work out every single day, drink a bunch of water, have some vitamins throughout the day and skip, skip processed foods. It's not rocket science. And yes, yet it's the key to everything. I'm less anxious. I'm happier. You know, I look better. It's like, why do we confuse all these extra oh, nootropics? And then I've got this and I got to do, it's like, no, no, just like eat healthy stuff, work out a little bit, drink some water, go to sleep. That's it. It's not, it's not that hard. Um, living here in Italy, it's, I, I get a lot, you know, I'll have these conversations and I'll be like, what, what is keto? What is that? What is, why are you intermittent fasting? Exactly. Why are you jumping in an ice box? To, like, I don't know, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's exactly. great. like, it's just make it, make it simple. Just um, bunch of anxious monkeys. Yeah. Monkeys. A couple more questions. Then we'll wrap. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be? And why? I got a special place in my heart. Um, for Rio in Brazil, mm-hmm. um, especially like, I really like, um, some of the like outside beaches, like Florinopolis. Um, I think that talk about like, they have some of that Italian flair, like when Ew. you go and, and this is a gross generality and there's massive inequalities and all of that yep. in, in Brazil too. But, you know, a lot of my friends that live there, they just love life. You know, they wake up in the like half of my friends in finance, which you can picture that they're like dancing around at lunch, like legitimately twirling around. And so I think that is a good environment for me to be in every once in a while, because they don't really let you take yourself too seriously there. And so it's probably probably time to go back there for a minute or two. It's good. I did a couple of uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eves in uh, Rio. Um, Oh, that's dangerous, man. Oh my God. Imagine 3 million people all dressed in white at midnight in the beach, throwing gladiolas into the ocean. I mean, I, I remember getting there and I started with Caipirinhas, like it, it goes down like Kool-Aid. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you can't get your ass out of a chair because like, yes. you're, like the Kashaka kills you, but you're right. That's a, it's a fun place. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back uh, it doesn't have to be in the last few years that you've changed your mind substantially where you're like, you know, I used to think this, but I don't anymore. Now, I, I now think this. I used to think that marriage was hard. I uh, am divorced and remarried. And I used to think that marriage was really, really hard. And I think that was true in my last marriage for both of us, or that was my narrative at the time. I don't know. And now, actually, I think it's probably one of my biggest strengths. We don't always get along. We don't always agree with everything, but having somebody else who just has your back and sort of has decided, Hey, I'm going all in on this. I mean, my husband and I said to each other, um, if this doesn't work out, you know, that'll be a, that'll be a bummer, but we're not doing it again. I might have a pool boy, but like, I'm not getting married again. And so, uh, you know, and he said the same thing. And so, you know, it's sort of that idea of like, we're going all in on it. And if it doesn't work out, that would be really sad. Um, and so because of that, I think there's a lot of freedom in our marriage and we really just enjoy having another person to lean upon. And so I think that maybe me thinking that marriage was, was hard was probably not great for my first marriage too. No, no, I don't, I don't think so. But you did find a Navy SEAL on the second one. So you, I think you did, you did pretty damn good. I did okay. Uh, all right, last two questions. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Like a big, huge glass of red, especially Italian and French. Two of my favorites. I'm looking out at the hills of uh, Chianti as we speak. Yeah, remember that thing where I told you that I didn't, that I just wanted to work all the time and never take vacations. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds not as good right now. I'm actually in the process of writing a book, um, ostensibly on bringing my American entrepreneurship to Italy and how it's fucked me up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's so hard to be that way here because like, I'm I, like, I'm literally looking out my window at the Arno now. And there are people that are like eating gelato, like they're making love. Like it's un, <laughs> like, they are just, they'll sit there for like an hour and lick that. It's, it, it is so different than where I came from. Oh yeah. That would be, that would be hard. Last question. We'll change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Ooh. Well, I think I would kind of ask you um, something about longevity. Like, you know, I was looking at how many podcast episodes you've done, and then you've had like a very varied career historically. 
Yeah. And so, but you seem on this pot, like you're so curious and you're so engaged and you've done a ton of digging. Mm-hmm. What keeps you, you talk about being interested in the gelato, but then the actions today and all of the background to get there don't seem to lead one to believe that you just want to be doing gelato. So how do you stay interested and engaged? Well, there's, I, there's probably two questions baked in that. Um, I think the, the, first, the first part of it is we have different ages. I'm 56. And at 35, 36, I was never at the level. How old are you? 35? 35. Okay. I was never at the level that you were at at 35, but I was definitely a grinder. And when you multiply that by a few decades and your your mortality starts getting more real, you start looking for, um, like there's, there's an author here. Um, do you know the author, David Bach? He wrote uh, The Latte Factor, Smart Women, Finish Rich. He's a New York Times bestseller. And he spent years and years and years teaching people how to become wealthy um, in a different way than you, but teaching people how. And so he moved to Florence because he wanted to start living rich instead of teaching people how to be rich. And you, I hit a point in my life where I was looking for more meaning in more areas of my life. In other words, I want to understand, you know, you talked about it earlier uh, when you were talking about the simple things that like keep you healthy. There are simple things that um, they do here, like wine and olive oil and family and food and arts and things like that, that are so deeply human that like you, like I'm sitting in an, in a neighborhood that is 2000 years old. And I came from a country that is 200 years old. And when you're walking in this environment, you feel the Renaissance, like it goes through you. You can't not feel it. Like it's, it's in you. And when you stand there and you're looking at art, um, it changes you. And so I wanted to get out of the environment that was stimulating me in the same way over and over again. It's kind of like going to the gym, you know, like girls are always working on their butt and their legs and guys are always doing like biceps and triceps and chest. And like, after a while, like it's an overdeveloped muscle. I needed to put myself in an environment that was not overdeveloped for me. I don't know wine. I don't know art. I don't know how to speak Italian, but I wanted to force myself in that environment so that I could be stronger in different dimensions and not the same one over and over again. So that's the, that's how I wound up here in terms of the curiosity piece. um, I'm fascinated by people and learning. And I, I, you know, like if you put me in a cab with a cab driver, I'm going to, I'm going to know him by the time I get out of it. And I, (laughs) I have to, I have to rein it in because it is, I am just insatiably curious that I will question you to death. So for me, it's super enjoyable to be around this, but it would make you crazy. Like after a while, you'd be like, holy shit, will you stop fucking asking me questions? Do you know what I mean? Oh, I'm similar. So yeah, I'm sure we're exhausted. So you, un- you understand. Did that answer the, the question? Yeah, that was a super interesting one. Do you think that you're, have you always been curious like mm-hmm. that or was that cultivated? No, I've always been curious. I came, I came from a background that wasn't good and I needed to understand how to live a better life. And so for me, modeling was always very, very important. Tony Robbins had a big impact on my life 20, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I went to a Tony Robbins event in 1984. um, And that sort of modeling and learning how people do things and the deconstructing of it um, has allowed me to uh, escape an environment that really wasn't great. So that those, those, you know, you said at the very beginning of this interview, you don't need to understand, I'm paraphrasing you, but you don't need to understand, you don't need a, you know, an MBA from Georgetown um, if you ask good questions. 
And those good questions have allowed me to lead a life beyond my wildest dreams because I'm asking great questions. So for me, just learning through questions is is powerful. And, and, you know, you can see from the questions I asked you that, you know, I'm really coming up with a well-crafted question is a skill that I think people really, really need to, like, I hate when I'm interviewed and somebody says to me, like, so tell me about your childhood. Like, like when I was, tell me your story. Like, like when I was 10, I when I was 20, when my parents got divorced, like what, like, you know what I mean? Like, so that, 100%. that search function of the brain, you just, you, you can't answer it. Cause it's so, but when you ask a well-constructed question, you can get somebody to go, Oh, when in the late nineties, when I was in Arizona with a Latino dad, Oh, I can answer that one. I know what totally. that was like. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too, because I wish, I think sometimes the best skills are the hardest to teach. Everybody wants a tactic, like say this and this will happen or read this and this will happen. That's not really how it works. You know, even with, with buying businesses, I'm always like, you know, instead of asking me which business you should buy, you should ask me which questions should I ask myself to figure out what business to buy? And that I could say, oh yeah, let me tell you. And if you answer these questions, then you're going to have, you know, and instead of saying, how do I find a business? Same thing. What question should I be asking myself to figure out how to find a business? I think that's like a cheat code. Um, But instead we just say, give me the thing uh, because that makes more sense to to us. Well, I love you. I'm in love with you. You could tell you could tell you, you could tell your husband that too. What's he gonna, How long are you going to stay in Tuscany? Uh, you know, it's the most asked question I get. And the, the honest answer is I have no desire to leave. Mm. None. I would, I went to, I went back to America, um, for Easter. No knock to America. I got it just, you get in all kinds of trouble with this, but I, as soon as I got back, I was like, I can't wait to get back here. It, it was, it was just so different. Like I, when I go out to a party here or an event or dinner with friends, I don't even know what anybody does for a living. Then it's just not, it, nobody talk. It's not, if you bring up business, you, you might hate it at this stage of your life. (laughs) If you bring up business, they will immediately say to you, let's not talk. I don't want to talk business. Let's have fun. They want to dance. They want to eat pasta. They want to talk about art. They want to talk about culture. They don't give a shit about business. They don't, they really, they want to have enough money to have a great life. Um, but they want to, they really, like I, I have had more conversations about gelato and olive oil than I've ever thought I would in my life. And it's like, you don't know that that olive oil is shit. You want to go here, this guy has it. And it's just, neighborhood is really, really important. So I don't have any do- desire to go back. Um, my wife doesn't. And um, neither does my my daughter. It's funny, you know, because she's been here now, we're going on nine months and she's seven. And I could start to see like little things are, little things are happening. Like she said, she said to me the other day, she said, dad, what's that thing called in the summertime when you, you do it on the, the coals and what people in America, they eat the, um, it's the long thing with the, I said, a hot dog. She's yes. <laughs> like starting to like forget like America and she's g- stepping into it's very interesting to see, like, I'm, you know, I'm old. So it's like, it's gonna be really hard for me to change. Um, but even little things, like even just the way, like you don't walk out, if you're not dressed on the street here, like it's a thing, like you, there is no athleisure, none. <laughs> like there are no yoga pants happening for women. Oh, like you just, no. you just don't like it just does not happen. They would say it's bruta figura. It's it's ugly form. 
I it's, like that actually. It's really, really crazy. I, I, I met my attorney and I said, hey, I'm coming out from the gym because um, we're going to go have lunch. Uh, do you mind if I, I, like, I don't have time to change. He said, no, I'll, I'll meet you later. You have time. You can go home and get changed. Like, <laughs> like they don't, they don't fuck around. Like it is, fashion is a thing here. Like you, you because the standard for, in America, the standard, like two girls will see each other and they'll be like, you look cute. You look cute. Like the standard is cute. Yeah. Not here. If you say cute here, it's an insult. It's beautiful. It's Bella. They want beauty. So their standard is way, way, way in terms of that. Like the way you dress, the way you present yourself. It's like, it's beautiful. And if, if you go into a store and you buy something, you'll say, what do you think? They'll be like, no, not with your body. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's really crazy. It's really crazy. Well, listen, I could talk to you for hours. This was so good. Uh, People are going to get a lot from it. Um, Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people listening? Well, go check out contrarianthinking.co. See if you think that sounds interesting. And uh, yeah, don't buy a laundromat. Buy something else to start with. Perfect. I'm going to do that. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Rob. Have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 